As you start to reach more people, things start to feel more complex. There's more to do and more to keep track of, and it starts to actually take time away from creating content. I felt this struggle personally. The more creator science grew, the more it felt like I was dropping the ball. So I did something about it. I built a set of rock solid systems, all in Notion to support the business as we grew. And it worked like a charm. I've now taken my personal Notion setup and productized it. It's called Creator HQ, and it's the complete operating system that you need for your creator business. I built Creator HQ to be an all-in-one workspace designed to save you more time, create more content, and drive more revenue. By leveraging Creator HQ, we are publishing more than we ever have, and we're nearing $1 million in annual revenue because of it. It brings all of your data and processes into one place with custom-built dashboards to reduce friction in managing tasks, creating content, and collaborating with your team. I've seriously spent more than three years building this, and now you can have the same systems that I use right out of the box. In the lab, one of our members just posted, I have spent the last few weeks diving into Creator HQ, learning how it works, and making it my own. This is the first time in a while that I've felt this organized and filled with hope that I can find a workflow that will work for me with my whole business. This is gold. I will definitely be giving a testimonial for this badass product. If you're new to Notion, don't worry. I've included a ton of specific tutorials to help you learn how to use Notion generally and Creator HQ specifically. I've never seen another Notion product integrate tutorials like we have here. More than 300 other creators are already using Creator HQ, and I am not exaggerating when I say I would be lost without this system. Creator HQ is what keeps the trains running over here. As a podcast listener, I'm giving you my best price. You can get 10% off using the promo code podcast at checkout. Just head to creatorhq.co to watch the video and learn more. That's creatorhq.co and use promo code podcast to save 10%. I know what my vision is. I know what I bring to a project. That was something I didn't know when I was a kid. Now that I know what I bring, I can essentially call on other people say, well, this person is really good at this. This person is really good at this. I don't want to be an expert at everything. Welcome to Creative Elements, a show where we talk to your favorite creators and learn what it takes to make a living from your art and creativity. I'm your host, Jay Klaus. Let's start the show. Hello, my friend, and welcome to another episode of Creative Elements. I want to start today's episode with a quick announcement that I'm really excited to share with you. The last three months have been absolutely incredible. The show has gotten more love than I could have ever hoped for. And for that, I thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you to so many of you who have reached out on Twitter and on Instagram. And thank you to everyone who has rated and reviewed the show on Apple Podcasts. We blasted through 100 ratings just last week, and they are all five stars. It's incredible. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And as the show has grown, a lot of you have asked if there's going to be some sort of listener community. And so today I'm excited to share with you that we have created a new private Facebook group for listeners of this show. You can find the link in the show notes in my Twitter or Instagram bios or by searching Creative Elements listeners on Facebook. I'm really excited about it. My girlfriend Mallory is helping me to moderate it. It's brand new, so bear with us. But go ahead and join us and help get the party started. Every week, I'll share a little behind the scenes from the show, and we can talk about the episodes. Okay, speaking of episodes, let's get on to today's episode. I've spoken with quite a few writers on this show already, from Seth Godin to James Clear and Ash Amberger, just to name a few. But the writers I've had on this show have been nonfiction writers. And for the most part, they were writing online long before they were working to publish a book. Now, I'll be honest with you, writing and podcasting aren't the most lucrative gigs right out of the gate. I can promise you that. And I haven't personally met many people making a living as a writer of fiction. But today, I'm talking with one of them. Today, I'm speaking with Jude Brewer, an author, screenwriter, producer, and fellow podcaster. Lately, Jude has built a name for himself in podcasting with his popular show, Storybound. The show has been covered in the New York Times and on the AV Club, which makes me very, very jealous. But before Storybound, Jude was making a name for himself as an award-winning author of fiction and short stories. Here's an excerpt of Jude reading a story called I Dreamt. I dreamt last night I worked for the state. My job title was voice creator. 
The building I worked in was tall and gray, resembling a castle or a prison. Upon entrance, I would show my ID badge, and a hole would open up in the cement floor for me to fall into. This hole would take me to where I was meant to work, I suppose. But my ID was faulty or contained some error, so the guard asked me to step aside while he inspected it. Meanwhile, other people entered, and the floor would open up beneath them, but the hole that appeared glowed orange, and when they fell, I heard them screaming. The guard eventually said to me, you had a name change. He handed me back my badge. He said, I've made the correction in our system and you're free to go. He pushed some button or flipped a switch, which opened the floor a couple steps beside me. The hole was not glowing orange. It wasn't glowing at all. It was black. No sounds down there. No cold air escaping or rush of warmth. Just a colorless void. Its depth was seemingly infinite. In this episode, Jude and I talk about building a career as a writer, traditional publishing versus self-publishing, his struggle to keep with a regular job, Portland's literary scene, and why adapting his stories for different mediums has helped his career take off. This episode is a lot of fun, and if you stick around towards the end, you'll even get to hear some really great excerpts from Jude's recent projects. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode as you listen. You can find me on Twitter or on Instagram at jklaus. Or remember, you can now join the party on our Facebook group. Just search Creative Elements Listeners on Facebook. All right, now let's jump in and talk with Jude. I mean, I didn't know what a writer looked like. You know, my experience with writing was the books I was reading all the time as a kid, just escaping in my imagination, chilling at my grandparents' house, just to have my head in a book all the time. I mean, I loved... I loved imagining and I loved disappearing into these worlds. And so I knew when I was about 12, 13, that I wanted to be a writer. I didn't know what that looked like. When you're getting started, were you tending towards fiction as opposed to nonfiction? Well, well when I, yeah, when I started, it was all fiction. I, I'd say anything I write has always had an element of my actual life in it. And I don't know about other writers, but for me, I think that's just inescapable because otherwise I'm not tied to it. But it's also a way that I can kind of hide. And I started out writing these fictional stories to kind of get through some real emotionally turbulent times when I was a teenager. And it actually started out when I've, I've looked at this in retrospect that I think it was a way for me to communicate with my mother at the time, because it was just my mother and I growing up and I would write a full story and then I would give it to her and I would sit there, she would sit in her chair and she'd read it. And then we get to have long conversations about it. And so it really became my way of communicating my feelings to other people, but covertly. Like I wasn't having to actually, you know, explain my feelings. They could experience them through characters. I started writing my first stories on my grandparents' typewriter. And by the time I was 15, I had finished a full book and I was talking to my, I mean, I wasn't really paying attention to any of my classes. But my teacher at the time, she was really smart and she was keyed into the fact that, okay, this kid's writing a book, so and he doesn't really want to do the schoolwork. So she actually just let me work on that. And so I had a couple very integral people in my life, a couple teachers who were, you know, very supportive of me in that regard. So by the time I got into college, I had been sort of in this practice of writing a full-scale book. I don't think any of them were very good. I got my first publishing contract when I was like 19. And then I ended up canceling it because I was like, the world should never, ever see this book. At the publisher at the time also, they were just signing a bunch of authors. And I was learning a lot about uh, predatory publishers at the time. I'm surprised to hear that as a teenager and at 19, you got your first publishing deal. Even to know what the publishing world was about or how to go about trying to find a publishing deal seems like it'd be difficult to conceptualize in your teens if you didn't have somebody kind of guiding you down that path. So what did that look like for you? How did you enter the publishing world early? And what did you think that path would be like? Actually, the first book that I ever bought on publishing, which to this day I would recommend to anybody, was Publishing for Dummies or How to Publish Your Book for Dummies or something like that. I can't remember the author's name, but I had it on my shelf for years. I think I gave it to a friend because they were very curious about the publishing world. They knew nothing about I said, read this because it breaks it down in the best way possible. And I, I think it's still applicable today, even though that was written in the early 2000s. 
um, or kind of kind of late nineties, early two thousands. Cause I got, I got it. I think it was around two, yeah, 2002. And it talked actually all about predatory publishers. It talked about vanity publishing. It talked about kind of what to expect, how to write a query letter to agents. It even broke it down and was like, is your book even ready? Like, do you even have a good enough idea to totally sustain through a novel? So uh, it had me already thinking of my stories in ways that I hadn't before. Um, and that was really good for me as a kid because I was just discovery stage all the time. Like, I mean, I could see a book, but then I was like, okay, well, if it's my own book and I'm going to take somebody through this, what does it actually look like? It's always just this totally open-ended project. So that was the first uh, book that I had read. And it really prepared me for some of the, I mean, when I say predatory publishers, it, it, it prepared me for that first contract where I realized, okay, if this was a if this was a good situation, they would be treating me this way. They would be treating me differently. And that book showed me like how you could be treated as an author. I'm like, well, I'm not getting treated like that. Maybe I should just let it go. Can you break that down a little bit more? Yeah. So it was a publisher that at the time was, this was when publishing was really changing a lot. So I got into this industry when snail mail was kind of going out the door and everyone was going more email based. And so I was still sending off manuscripts snail mail around that time. And others were still trying to adapt to just getting full on emails. This publisher was doing all email and they were signing off. What I found out is they were signing authors like left and right and basically just queuing up these books, but they only had maybe a couple editors and the editors were going at such a insanely slow pace. And I didn't really understand the pacing, but when it took two years to get through two chapters of my book, I realized that they must not care about this project that much. It wasn't on their high priority list. And within two years, I mean, I had gone from working in high school at like the cannery over the summers to doing retail at Sears and Best Buy to selling knives over the summer to going through college, like within two years. And I was working at Blockbuster and like, I just was like, I want to write other things. Like by the time I even looked at that, those chapters in that book, I was like, I don't even connect with the story anymore. What's the model of a publisher that's trying to move that quickly and just sign authors left and right? What's their incentive for going about it that way? I think that they were just trying to get themselves started really fast. I, you know, there's, there's a couple of ways you could do this. If you're going to start you know, your own small press, you could pick just a few very quality writers. You, know, you could pick four. Hell, you could pick two and say, we're only going to publish two books a year, but you make them count. You know, you you spend X number of months going through the developmental stage and going through several rounds of edits. And then, you know, you lay out your months of marketing and, and, and you get that down. You have your two books a year. Otherwise, you have this publisher that and others, I think, who, you know, are going to have a lot, not as long of a lifespan. And they're just going to say, hey, let's just like sign them as quickly as we can and just get them out because they're more concerned with, we got to get books sold. We got to, and they were actually going more towards e-publishing at the time anyway, because e-publishing was getting huge. Kindle was just like launched around that era. And so they were thinking we need to have as many books available for people to buy. And I mean, I think long-term that just, I mean, it, it showed with them, it didn't work. They're not, they're not around anymore because they were treating books as though they were like just popcorn people just eat and get through. Yeah. Or even maybe just like lottery tickets, you know, they're trying to build this portfolio of like, well, if we publish 30 things, maybe one of them will hit. That's exactly it. And I was thinking, oh, if I'm, if my writing is going to be treated like a lottery ticket, it's like I'm out because that's not why I got into it. Let's double click on this while we're talking about it. And I'd love to hear your input as far as if I am an author and I'm thinking about being published, when does going through a publisher make sense? versus self-publishing? Well, I, I still very much believe in the traditional format. I don't discount self-publishing at all. I mean, I think it was uh, Andy Weary did The Martian. I mean, he that was self-published. There are a number of success stories where writers have self-published. They've gotten a following. They've done really well. And then a publisher says, hey, I want to pick this up and I want to print it myself. So you have that kind of success story. You have others who are just really happy with just self-publishing and not having, not having a middleman. But also, some of those stories, you also hear that they did have a friend in marketing or they had a friend somewhere that helped lift them up and make those sales possible. So it's actually rare that I, I believe, and maybe I'm wrong about this, but it's, I think it seems to be rare, rare than we think that someone just comes up out of nowhere 
and and they're purely self-published and they have no team around them at, at whatsoever. And, and that's the same thing with musicians. It's the same thing with anything in, in, in an independent format as far as artists go. I, I believe strongly in a process where you are not surrounded by yes people. Like actually being surrounded by people who uh, can look at your work critically and not that they're just saying this is bad, this is bad, this is bad, but also reinforcing what's good about what you're doing. I thrive off of that. I mean, most writers, even before they ever publish their book or even before they start pitching it, like they'll workshop it with their friends or they'll have, they'll actually have writers groups and they go, all right, we're going to go through all these pages. I know friends who are, you know, paying editors several thousand dollars to go and help them redevelop a book they've already written before they start showing it to agents. So I think if you went through all of those channels and then you wanted to self-publish still, that's fine. You're going to come out with a really, you'll come out with a good book. But I, I very much believe in the traditional format because for me, I'm always self-publishing. Like if I write something, I put it on my shelf. I have so many self-published books. I just haven't published them to the world. When I'm going to pitch to publishers, I'm saying I want to go the traditional route. Is it to my benefit to have this final polished product that I work at least with an editor through? Or I've heard some people say that you might actually be better off not having anything written at all and selling the publisher on the idea of it and the, the dream of what it could be. If you're going to sell people on the idea of something, you better be an absolute expert. Like when you have a, uh, typically when you're pitching a memoir, memoirs, you'll have like a proposal and your proposal breaks down what your book's about, how you're going to write it, example chapters, and then like where you think it falls in line with other books. And you have to lay out your expertise. I mean, they generally you know want to see that you can actually write the book. Because they're taking a risk. That's the thing. Agents and publishers, every time they're taking... Agents is like, cool, I'll work for you for free for like X number of years and hopefully it sells and then I'll make some money. And then publishers are like, sure, we'll put all this resources behind and hopefully people take it. I mean, everyone's taking a risk on you. And that was something that I didn't realize when I was younger. I would just like write a draft of a book. I'd be like, it's perfect. I'd send it off. Why don't they want it? Like, what's wrong with them? And it was very selfish of me because these people are taking a risk, just opening your email and get, because time is precious and the publishing industry is chaos all the time because no one knows what to do. Like no one knows necessarily what's good or what's going to catch on. So they're constantly panicking. So uh, to answer your question, I think that it's always beneficial to get your product as polished as possible and just be patient and wait. Like publishing and writing are very slow art forms. If you're not patient, you're in the wrong art form just because it could be, it could take years. It could take decades. It seems like people probably overestimate the total value and the reality of what an advance looks like from a publisher too, because these are years of work on these things and you're not going to get an advance to fund your life for multiple years unless you really have either a lot of credibility or uh, an audience already behind you. Does that track with your experience? Yeah, hugely for sure. Um, I would say the books that I was pitching when I was in college, uh, because I had written, there were two books in particular that I was writing during that time. One was more sci-fi-ish and then one was just like a kind of a this small town that I every once in a while still return to with short stories. It's basically this little fantasy life that I, that I made up in my head that I loved. And, uh, just like, all, I'm going to have to ask some questions about that. <laughs> yeah. It's like 40, 40 characters that I still just like, I, I love so much and I'll turn to in different ways. But I basically realized that when I was pitching those books in college, that the thing that was constantly coming back to me was we like your writing. We think this is an interesting story. We don't know how to sell it. Like I heard that so many times. And it got to the point to be very frustrating where I started actually having a little bit of a crisis every time I would start a new book. I'd start thinking, can I sell it? Is any gut, can, can somebody sell this? And that was a big fear of mine because I think I was writing in these small niches and I'm, I still kind of am. Like, I still want to write something that's very narrow and for a very specific audience. And it doesn't mean that I, in fact, this, I enjoy things of so many flavors. I, I mean, it's actually really rare that I even read or consume the kind of stuff that I like to make. We make, the, we make a narrative podcast. And I don't actually listen to that many narrative podcasts. I listen to a lot of interviews and comedy podcasts. But as far as having an audience, yeah, I mean, this, 
it's really important, especially as an author. So I find ways to perform it live. I find ways to act it out. I mean, I'm constantly finding ways to adapt, essentially. Talk to me about this fantasy world that you've built, these 40 characters that you keep returning to. Where did that come from? I have no idea where that came from. When I was in when I was in high school, um, I I had for some reason dreamt up this little family. Uh, this father named Abram, and he had his three daughters, Magdalene, Mars, and Danielle, and then he has a son, Jeremiah. And his wife's passed away, and he is trying to raise these children. And every time I finish a story, like I, I'll, I'll get like a, a new tattoo for it somewhere for myself. And I have, a, I have this tree on my shoulder, and the tree is from this book because what I wanted was Abram was basically going through this severe depression at the time. He missed his wife. It had been four years, and he hadn't moved through it. And so there was a tree in their backyard that he just wasn't tending to and it was rotting and he knew he had to cut it down but he kept putting it off and putting it off and towards the end of the story there's a storm that happens every year they've been talking how this year is going to be a bad one the tree actually knocks down and it falls through their house and lands in the son's room his son ends up in the hospital and so for me that story was a lot of these these subtle messages that are coming out to you throughout your daily life that you aren't even aware of. You just kind of keep moving and you're ignoring what is right there in front of you, like the, the, the problem to solve. And I think that was me just sort of unconsciously just knowing that for myself. That's still something I'm, I'm learning on a daily basis. So for me, this town, like that started with that family, but I kept returning to this town every time and all these characters kept coming to play and I would throw new events that would happen. Like at one point there was a school shooting that happened in the town and now, now I wanted the town to deal with that. Now there's a creepy coach at a high school. I wanted people to deal with that. I, it was for me, this town was a place where I could solve, not that I could solve problems, but I could watch these other people solve problems, but very realistically and maybe even fail at them. And that was a very fun dynamic for me to play out. And so I'm, I still toy with them all the time. I love that because it's this continued investment into this world that you've created. You know, you're, every time you go back, you add a little bit of depth to at least the environment, if not individual characters, which uh, I think has to be really, really fulfilling. When we come back, Jude talks about his first published book and the beginning of his writing career taking off right after this. If you know me, you know how much I believe in memberships. My membership is the core of my business and earning an income directly from your audience is one of the most sustainable ways for you to become a professional creator too. So I want to tell you about today's sponsor, Uscreen. Uscreen is a beautiful all-in-one platform that helps content creators earn a living from their videos by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. You can host private live streams for your members, build an on-demand catalog of premium content, and Uscreen gives you a community hub to interact with your members too. They can access your community from their mobile phone, so your membership is right there in their pocket. With a Uscreen account, you get video hosting, an out-of-the-box website, full payment and subscription management, and plenty of third-party integrations too. And Uscreen makes it easy to get set up. You get access to powerful website themes that are fully brandable with no coding skills required. Uscreen will even provide a dedicated success manager for you. Just about anyone that wants to make money from their content can do it with Uscreen. It's perfect for coaches, authors, influencers, and entrepreneurs in just about any niche. Right now, Uscreen is used by creators in fitness, education, news, kids entertainment, and more. That includes Yoga with Adrian and Creator Now, just to name a couple. Uscreen is the platform for building a video membership site that is great for generating a sustainable income for professional creators. If you create video content for your audience, I highly recommend checking it out. If you're interested in learning more about Uscreen, visit uscreen.link slash J. That's U-S-C-R-E-E-N dot link slash J and let them know that I sent you. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Last year, my wife and I started talking about her joining the business full time. This is a huge decision, not just for the business, but for our marriage. My wife, being the very smart and thoughtful woman that she is, suggested that we proactively sign up for therapy as a couple to help us communicate better before we started working together. It really helped us have better language to describe how we're feeling and listen to one another, which generally lowers the intensity of any conversation. 
Now, I had never been in therapy before, but here's something that I didn't expect. It didn't just help our dialogue, but it helped my inner monologue too. The way I understand my own experience has changed based on the tools that I got from therapy. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, so it's convenient, it fits your schedule, and you can be in the comfort of your own home. Just fill out a short questionnaire and you'll get matched with a licensed therapist. They even make it easy to switch therapists if it doesn't feel like a fit. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com creator today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot creator. Welcome back to Creative Elements. Up to this point in the interview, we've talked a lot about Jude's career and experience as an author, but that didn't come easily or quickly. And while he was working to earn a living as a writer, he was also working a job. Well, actually, a lot of jobs. I did a tally of this um, a while back, and I've worked 20 jobs in my life. And wow. <laughs> I would basically work a job you know, for several months and I would get really good at it. I would either have like top sales numbers or something like that. And, and I, and that's fine. I, those are, I don't think those are like me, like Tidy Mago. I'm really good at this job. In fact, I failed at the fundamental part of every one of those jobs. And that was just the day in and day out committing to it and sticking to it. I would get bored really quickly. It's why I barely got through college because I was constantly writing or wanting to do all these. I was like, I already know what I want to do with my life. So I kept just floating from job to job. It wasn't until I took a road trip down to Arizona when I got out of college and I went and met my dad. I hadn't seen him since I was about seven and he was homeless at the time. And I ended up writing a whole book about that. And that was like the first book that I got published. And, you know, everything kind of took off from there. I met the whole writing community in Portland. It was all of a sudden meeting writers in person and being able to contextualize that because I didn't really know what a writer was. I just knew this was the thing that I liked to do. I don't necessarily even really think of myself as a writer. I just think of myself as someone who loves to escape all the time. And that, well, as an adult, I'm actually trying to escape less. I'm actually enjoying more collaborative work. So it's that's been a really interesting evolution, I think, in the last 10 years. I'm definitely not how I started in this thing. I'm more sociable. I'm, I'm not as like by myself and isolated wanting to write all the time. At this point, how many books or short stories, like how do you think about your body of work and how much of this you have published? My body of work <laughs> is right now, it's in a bunch of boxes. It's so funny. I actually just went through them recently. I have, um, yeah, just journals and journals and so many printed out copies of manuscripts. I still keep around. I like flipping through them. I like kind of seeing where I was at at a certain time and learning from it. I feel good about my body of work, but I also feel like, honestly, it's just really starting. I think for the first time, I actually have found my voice that I'm... And it's just taken me... Like I thought when I was younger, I thought, oh, I like to write. And I, I have it out down, so I know it. I'm actually... I'm really glad that I've had the last you know, 15 years to essentially develop that voice because I've had several voices on the page and it's for the first time I actually am very confident of what's coming out. So, you know, my body of work, I, yeah, I do actually feel like it's just beginning. And, and as short stories were something that I didn't really like doing for the longest time. I liked that because I would get really obsessed about one little thing and I wanted to really flesh it out. I love the longer, the larger scale projects. It's the same reason why I think some of those books I've started developing into like screenplays or like TV pilots. That's something that I started getting into uh, several years ago. Cause I have a couple friends who work on some shows of mine that I, I just absolutely love. And so I like the idea of basically converting those stories into just because a novel is a very specific experience. So I'm trying to think about what do I want out of that specific isolating experience when you're reading a book versus some of these other stories? I'd be interested in, I mean, I, I want to see actors bring them to life. I want to see them actually come to life on a screen. And I think some of these stories serve themselves better in that format versus by yourself in a room. I want to get into some of this work you're doing with uh, short films and podcasts here in a second. But before we got on here, we were talking about how you've had to be adaptable in your career. So when it comes to 
all of this work that you've produced, how have you had to adapt as you were creating this body of work and getting to this point now where you think you're, you're really at just the beginning of what your career will be? Well, I would say the biggest wake up call for me was when I got involved in the lit scene here in Portland. And that was a, a really just a total shock to my senses because I had done theater, right? But I had never read one of my stories on stage. And the first time I ever did that was this dank little bar called the Jack London. And every month they do this thing called authors and pubs. And the guy who invited me was this guy who it was, he was sitting at this bar. He looks over and he was like, what are you, what are you writing in this journal? Cause I was just writing something down and I was telling him to write a story. And he goes, I do this thing called authors and pubs. And he was probably like 10 beers in this guy was, he was so far gone. I didn't even know if it was real. And I was just like, uh, sure. Like I had no idea. And, uh, I remember the first time I get there and I remember hearing them call my name. And I, I love that feeling. I love the feeling of hearing my name called up. And then all of a sudden my, I'm just, my whole chest is on fire. My stomach is all turning. I'm freaked out because I hadn't done theater for several years. I had done musicals and I had done Shakespeare, done a lot of different things in theater. And, but this was, oh, this is me getting to read my stuff. And it was actually great because everyone in, in the audience was kind of hammered and not even, I mean, <laughs> like they were the best crowd. And you, I got to learn sometimes what I thought were very melodramatic and serious stories. I actually got to learn there was a lot of humor in them. When I read the first story of my dad in public, and it was the, when he needed to get his medication and uh, he was going through a really tough time. He was addicted. He's been addicted to opiates uh, for the last like a couple decades. He's been struggling with that. And when I read this story, which I thought was a very tragic story, people were laughing at certain parts. And that just really opened my eyes to what I was missing when I was writing it down. Like, well, how can I get that laugh across? There's something I'm doing in my delivery that's working. That doesn't come through when you're reading it by yourself. And so that already started making me think of how to, how to adapt a little bit. And I wanted to write stories that could be told in different ways. It could be, you can read it by yourself. I can go and perform it. I can you know, record it for a show. Yeah. I, d I think I just, I started learning there was something actually very limiting for me in the way I wanted to tell stories. There's something very limiting about just having it on a page. And that was honestly due to my theater background. That's a really great insight because I feel like you can come at that moment and have that reaction and say, oh, there's more here or people are interpreting this differently or people are valuing it differently. Or you can say, these people don't get it and almost get defensive and angry that they're not <laughs> receiving it the way that you want them to receive it. it obviously, the, the former is more productive and useful, I think. But sure. I think a lot of people would have that second reaction. Uh, I mean, that would take, that would mean I've had, I would have had to have a lot more confidence as a young man for that to have happened. Like, I just want to put it out there that at a baseline level, I always thought I didn't know what the hell I was doing. <laughs> um, I definitely was ready, like always thinking that I, yeah, I just, I, I didn't know anything. And so it didn't serve me all the time because I would essentially immediately change if someone didn't like it. And so then I was left with a, a ship that didn't have a captain. You know, I was left with something that just didn't have a clear direction of where it was headed because I was like, oh, well, this person thinks this and this person thinks that. And I wasn't like staying true to like, all right, well, what is the, what is the final product that you want to hear? And I, I say this all the time. If I, if there are a couple musicians that I really love and if they're working on a new song or someone who hasn't written for something for a while, they've talked to me at a project. I just ask them like, well, when you like close your eyes, like what's the song that you hear? Like, why don't you just, just work toward that? Stop thinking about if it's, within those perfect three minutes that a single is, or stop, you know, thinking about whether it's exactly 60,000 words for your standard, you know, short novel, like stop thinking about these boxes or how it's going to be accepted because those things are useful. But I would say that if you are lacking a little bit of confidence, they can really sideline you and you get distracted. After the break, Jude and I talk about his evolution from author to producer and how he combined his love of writing with podcasting. This episode is sponsored by Podcast Movement. For the past decade, Podcast Movement has organized the world's largest gathering of podcasters, featuring thousands of attendees, hundreds of breakout sessions, panels, and workshops, plus the largest trade show in podcasting. 
Podcast Movement helps podcasters of all experience levels create, grow, and profit from their show. It's suitable for beginners, but you'll also have the opportunity to meet some of the biggest names in the industry. I've been to several Podcast Movement events, and not only is the programming incredible, but the culture and vibe are incredible too. It attracts thoughtful, empathetic, and collaborative people, which makes sense when you think about the medium of podcasting. Podcast Movement hosts two events per year. The first just wrapped up, but their flagship conference is happening August 19th through the 22nd in Washington, D.C. Attendees have the freedom to choose their own adventure across several different stages throughout the four-day event, not to mention dozens of amazing networking events, parties, and the expo hall floor. Tracks include podcast creation, video and live streaming, industry professional, plus several stages of curated programming from some of the top companies in podcasting. It's truly a unique event, and if you are a podcaster, I cannot recommend it enough. Right now, tickets are available at super duper early bird pricing. And as a Creator Science listener, you can save $50 on top of that by visiting podcastmovement.com science. That's podcastmovement.com science. Welcome back to Creative Elements and my conversation with Jude Brewer. Jude was just telling us about the impact the Portland lit scene had on his career. And it was through the Portland lit scene that he began to adapt his stories into brand new formats. Well, so in Portland, I started doing basically readings every month. And I would sometimes just write a story like the day before and go up on stage. And it was a way to try it out. It was almost like stand-up, you know, like I'm just trying out a set on someone and then I'd find out what worked and what didn't. Um, and then I'd go back home and work on a little bit more. And it was 2016 when my, I mean, I'd gone, I've been doing therapy for, since I was like 20. And, but it was around that time that I was having more panic attacks and just real surges of anxiety. And a lot of stuff was coming up that I hadn't really dealt with my whole life. So yeah, in 2016, I quit the job I was working at the time. I was working for, I'd been working in healthcare at the moment, and I worked at a place called Central City Concern. And they were really wonderful. They were really great to me. Probably one of the nicest organizations I've ever worked for. I told them, I said, I'm having breakdowns in the bathroom like every hour. I'm, I, I, I just can't get through it. And they said, well, okay, well, you, we were not going to challenge your unemployment. Uh, anytime you want, you can come back. So I spent six months trying to figure out, all right, what am I going to do? And I did apply for like other jobs. I tried figuring out kind of what direction I wanted to go. But I also thought, wait, for six months, I'm basically getting a writer's salary. <laughs> like I can write yeah. and do whatever I want for six months. So I committed myself to this 40-hour week schedule and I just had it in my mind that I was going to record stories that friends of mine that I had met on the road or at different readings, I, just, I went to their house like a Zoom recorder and I just recorded them reading different stories. And I said, give me something that's like anywhere from 10 minutes to 30 minutes long. And I started like experimenting with that and putting music and sound effects to them because I liked the idea of trying to bring that live experience when you go and hear a reading, but just add a little bit extra something to it. So yeah, I made like 20, 21 episodes and then I came up with a name for it. I called it Storytellers Telling Stories and I released it in 2017. Welcome to the Storytellers Telling Stories podcast. I'm Jude Brewer. There is a variety of ways you may listen. Through phone speakers, your car stereo, your earbuds. Regardless of the delivery system, we invite you to abandon the outside world and vanish for a short while. Wherever you are at the moment does not exist. This week's episode is titled, The Beast. Written and narrated by Kate Ristaw. My son Rowan is five, and he's a gentle soul. He loves listening to stories, playing the piano, and building Lego spaceships. Don't get me wrong, though. He's not all kisses and hugs and high fives. He also loves riding his bike 
and playing Bonky Bears. Bonky Bears, in case you didn't know, is a game he plays with his dad. They pull out the big stuffed animal bears and they play the Bonky game, which is a variant of wrestling without all the anger and sparkly tights. Bonking and pushing are part of the game, but here's the thing. Nobody ever gets hurt. I mean, in fact, the end result of Bonky Bears is usually a bear body slam followed by a bear snuggle party. It's all very warm and cozy. It took off at least within our little community here, you know, in Portland. And then I ended up doing a second season where I incorporated my musician friends. And it was such a bizarre turn of events for me because I was actually doing not as much writing. And I was doing a lot of just trying to adapt other people's stories and trying to bring out something unique in all of them. Storytellers Telling Stories was the beginning of Jude's evolution from author to producer, collaborating with other storytellers and artists to produce these pieces of audio. And it was season two of Storytellers Telling Stories that led Jude towards his new show, Storybound. Storybound brings together best-selling authors reading their original stories and pairs it with original music composed specifically for that episode. It's a really unique format, and I'll give you a preview here in a minute. Storybound came about as, uh, again, another total surprise. It was, I started getting more involved in Twitter a couple of years ago. Um, I developed some good friendships through there. Um, I have some friends who work on Better Call Saul. Um, and Oh, it's, it's a perfect show. It's an so absolutely perfect. I, I'm, I'm actually, the fan. Like, I like it. I like it more than Breaking Bad. I just think it's... <laughs> it's a very different show, but yeah, I'm right there with you. I don't know if I... It's hard for me to even compare the two, but it's It's so impossible, good. for sure. Yeah. Twitter was a way for me to connect with people in different levels of production and have some really engaging conversations with them. And that's how I met Jeff, uh, Jeff Umbro from the Podglomerate. And I was halfway through production on season two for storytellers telling stories. And I had sent him two episodes because I just thought, I, I actually honestly thought at the time he might like it. And then he might just want to share it with a couple people because I liked his work. I really liked the other shows. I thought he had a good quality uh, on a network. And then it just, he was like, was like, yeah, I really like this. And we should start, we should talk more. And it was fascinating because as I was finishing production on season two, we were also... Um, developing Storybound and kind of figuring out, well, what do we want this to sound like versus what was Storytellers? Storytellers was like every episode was a complete experiment. And I can't say Storybound is too different from that, but where it is different is that I actually have someone other than myself, which I think, again, makes it just a better show. Mm. Um, With Storytellers, I did everything. You know, I had nobody who was like even giving me a moderate amount of feedback, except for the writers. I would show them an episode and they'd tell me if they like it or not. We'll talk about Storybound a little bit. Uh, one of your first episodes was with Mitch Album. Mm-hmm. Talk about the process of getting authors on that show and getting a good amount of time from them to read uh, some of their writing. Yeah, I'm extremely proud of that show because my hands are not all over it. It's fun for me because... We will have an author like Mitch Album come on and he records a story. He basically, you know, recorded that story from his own studio and sends it over to us. And he tells me that, oh, he also has some voicemails of his adopted daughter, Chica. Um, And he's like, oh, and I can also, or not voicemails, but just like clips of her audio and stuff that you can incorporate. And so for me, that episode... The way that one came together was I took the recording and I gave it to this musician and her manager, uh, Maya Wynn, and her manager, Heidi. And uh, Heidi does a lot of sound for, for movies as well. She has a career in film. And so they basically worked on all the music production themselves, and then they sent it back to me. And I kind of tweaked a little bit, you know, with the score here and there. And then I added in the stuff with Chica. Why aren't you writing, Mr. Mitch? Chica is lying on the carpet in my office. She flips onto her back. She plays with her fingers. She comes here in the early morning when the light is still thin at the window. Sometimes she has a doll or a set of magic markers. Other times it's just her. She wears her blue pajamas with the My Little Pony cartoon on the top and pastel stars on the bottoms. In the past, Chica loved to choose her clothes each morning after brushing her teeth. 
matching the colors of the socks and the shirts. But she doesn't do that anymore. Chica died last spring, when the trees in our yard were beginning to bud, as they are budding now, as it is spring again. Her absence left us without breath, or sleep, or appetite, and my wife and I stared straight ahead for long stretches until someone spoke to snap us out of it. Then one morning, Chica reappeared. Why aren't you writing, she says again. My arms are crossed. I stare at the empty screen. About what? About me. I will. When? Soon. She makes a grrr sound like a cartoon tiger. Don't be mad, I say. <laughs> Don't be mad, Chica. <laughs> Don't go, okay? She taps her little fingers on the desk as if she has to think about it. Chica never stays for long. She first appeared eight months after she died, the morning of my father's funeral. I walked outside to look at the sky, and suddenly there she was, standing beside me, holding the porch railing. I said her name in disbelief. Chica? And she turned so I knew she could hear me. I spoke quickly, believing this was a dream and she would vanish at any moment. That was then. Lately, when she appears, I am calm. I say, good morning, beautiful girl. And she says, good morning, Mr. Mitch. And she sits on the floor or in her little chair, which I never remove from my office. You can get used to everything in life, I suppose. Even this. what's fun for me again is just being able to let go of something like get it let go it comes back i process it add a little touch um it's 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 more collaborative and that's pretty much what every episode is like for story bound where it's not just my vision because i i'm starting to understand in the last 10 years that you know i know what my vision is i know what i bring to a project that was something i didn't know when i was a kid now that i know what i bring i can essentially call on other people say well this person is really good at this this person's really good at this i don't want to be an expert at everything you know that's why i think i'm slowly moving into sort of a director role eventually for certain projects because um, I'm just really good at deferring to people who are better at things than I am. It's important. I mean, it's it's hard to do everything on your own. I mean, I can agree that my experience with uh, the podglomerate has been really great because while it's easier to schedule things on a show where I'm the only host and there's one guest, it certainly is helpful to have an extra set of eyes that has a reason to care about what you're doing or ears in this in this situation. An extra set of ears to care about what you're doing and give you really critical, constructive feedback to make it better it's really great. And I'm having a new, newfound appreciation of collaboration for the same reasons. If there's a writer or someone who thinks they're an aspiring author listening to this or an aspiring, you know, I want to make a career writing in whatever form that is, what advice would you give them or how should they adapt themselves so that they can as quickly as possible, get to a place where they can spend the majority of their time writing and making a living doing it? Yeah, that's, that's a tough one because I would say, obviously my goal is always been to be in a place where I'm exclusively doing these things. But I don't know if that should be the ideal. Meaning like at the end of the day, when things started going well for me, it was when I sort of just accepted that it might not all go my way. And it actually almost never will. I, I, I definitely didn't when I was 15 say, I want to have a podcast. That wasn't a thing. <laughs> I, I didn't, I mean, they actually did exist, but I just, that's not what I wanted. You know, it's no different than when I start out the first page of a book and I go, I know exactly what this, what this book is going to be. And then a month later I go, that is not what it is. And then a year later you go, what the hell did I do? Uh, this is not what I set out to do. So like, I think for me, the best advice that I, that I could give anybody really in any sort of arts discipline would just be to like, it's good to have your, it's good to have the things that you want and your vision and your expectations, but you have to be really ready to throw them out the window and also ask yourself like realistically, like, yeah, you're making this thing that you love and that's really good. I, I think you should always 
be committed to yourself. If you're not having fun doing it, there's really no point because people can tell. People can tell if you're not having fun. They can tell if you're not inspired. They can, like, they're going to they're gonna feel it. You're just going to be better off if, if you're enjoying it. But secondly, it's also good to just know who you're making it for and not worry about if they're a large audience or not. Because some of my favorite artists ever, which they reached me. So, I mean, I, I think they became big enough. They reached me, but like a huge influence for me. I love David Lynch, for instance. And uh, that guy definitely beats to the, you know, he could go on, on he's, he's on his own drum and uh, he, he would work on projects for just forever. You know, like Eraserhead took him 10 years, you know, and that's still a movie that I like to show people when I want to torture them a little bit. Um, I think like really the biggest key is patience. Like, don't be like overstressing where you're headed. Don't think about like, oh, I'm doing this wrong. Or it's like, you just need to like really stay focused and have like a good routine. Like I lacked routine for so many years growing up and I um, definitely lacked patience and I was dealing with anxiety issues. Like for me, if you're not writing, you're living and it's important to live because then when you do sit down to write or create music or work on a podcast or, or act, anything you do, you're going to take everything you just did while you were living and you're going to bring that into it. So like, it's really important to just live your life and then create and have that, have that separation. I think it was Steve Martin that said, everything is material. You know, that living is <laughs> yeah. material for whatever you're making. Exactly. Yeah, 100%. Well, there you have it. It is possible to make a living as a writer of fiction, even if you have to adapt your approach to do so. Just last week, the second season of Storybound premiered in partnership with the Podglomerate. You can find it right here in this very same podcast player if you search for Storybound. And if you enjoyed the excerpt with Mitch Album, that's season one, episode one. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode, so please jump into our brand new Facebook group and let me know what you think. You can find it in the show notes or by searching Creative Elements Listeners on Facebook. If you want to learn more about Jude, you can find him on Twitter at Jude Brewery or online at judebrewer.com. Thanks to Jude for being on the show. Thank you to Emily Klaus for making the artwork for this episode. Thanks to Brian Skeel for mixing the show and also creating our music. If you like this episode, you can tweet at me at jklaus and let me know. And if you really want to say thank you, as always, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you next week. The Podglomerate, a sonic universe.